A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, that's actually bollocks, sir. I'll have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? If a team's greatness can be measured by their ability to lull opponents into picking up incredibly stupid red cards... And Barcelona have shown themselves to be the greatest of all time this week. First, Sergio Ramos in the Classico. And now, somewhat more surprisingly, Fernando Torres losing the head and getting himself sent off at the new Camp. Owen and Ken here with the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. How you doing, Owen? I'm doing all right, Ken. I don't know if you agree with me, though, that Torres was particularly stupid and deserved to go. I thought it was a terrible decision. Really? Yeah, I, I really did. Like, I think you've got to make some allowances for uh, clumsiness. Um, Fernando Torres clumsily ran into a guy. It was like he it, it, it was a bit of a Boris Johnson type <laughs> of a, a Johnson, type yeah. of a foul. I mean, it wasn't as bad a foul as that, but it was. It had a similar. I've lost. I've lost my balance here and kind of crashed into the guy. I didn't think it was. A You're being generous. Yellow. You're talking about the second yellow yeah, card. That's I, didn't, it. I didn't think it was the second. Yellow the card. first one was idiotic because it's one of those ones where players running away from goal in an area. It, that was a Sergio Ramos type. Uh, yellow, it's just mm. one that for some reason you feel like you just have to pick something up here and get in, get yourself involved. Uh, I don't know. I thought this. I think you're being generous on the second one there. I thought you, if, if you go clattering into a guy and the ball's already been released, I can see that you know, he's not trying to break a guy's leg or anything. But it's, you're not talking about a straight red card. You're talking about a, a bookable offense. And to me, that's pretty clearly. No, a yellow I don't. Card. I don't think you should get a second yellow card for making a mistake. I mean, no, we no, have the second yellow card. Well, is the same as the first this, yellow card. Though. Well, the yellow card's a yellow card. We, this, this, this comes up quite a lot. Where you say, "Oh no, you shouldn't be sent off for that," but you you should be booked for it, and you've already picked up a, a yellow card, so therefore you should be sent off, even though it doesn't look as bad as uh, some, you know, as a straight red. Well, we've got all this this rule about, um, you know, oh, a handball isn't a handball a lot of the time. You know, <laughs> the handball things your are hand, yeah. Your hand is in a natural position. Your arm is in a natural position. You, you know, there's no, there's no intent. You know what I mean? There was no intent. Fernando has like, lost his balance and crashed into a guy. It wasn't a yellow card. It was kind but of he, a. You get up, you put your hand up, you say sorry about that. You know, and the referee says Fernando. You don't think that would maybe be a yellow maybe card. the referee looks over. He does the Gary Lineker face to Diego Simeone. He does the he does the he, he kind of looks <laughs> yeah. at Torres and Simeone kind of whips him off and, and replaces him maybe at that point but you don't you, you don't think that that would have been a yellow card if well, sorry it was it was given as a second yellow anyway you don't think that would have even been a legitimate yellow card if it was the first tackle he'd made I don't think it was a yellow card I think it's uh, I think you know I'd like to see you refereeing football matches Ken. the game would flow but there would also be brutal tackles going in with no punishments and maybe they wouldn't flow. well I'll tell you what I would have done. I'll tell you what I would have done, Owen, is I would have whipped out my red card and flashed it in the face of Luis Suarez <laughs> for kicking an opponent up the arse. Yeah. I mean, he'd literally, he wellied a guy out of it. I can't remember who, it was Juan Fran, I think. The ball was dropping, Suarez kind of went for it with the left foot, and then the ball is gone, and Suarez just booted him with the, with the right foot, like straight up. As hard as he could into that delicate hindquarters, and I thought, it's ridiculous. It's insane. You can't do that. Yeah, and, it's, and it was so obvious as well. It was like he really wound it up. It was like a proper Bishop Brennan type 
it wasn't like a, a sly little nudge with the knee. You know the way you can sometimes disguise quite a hard blow to somebody if, if there's a short you know, distance traveled and there's, you know, people are moving the, the right direction, you can kind of hurt someone without making it obvious. This was as obvious as it gets and somehow nobody sees it. Five officials, nobody. And this feeds into the idea to tell, especially in Spain, that Barcelona refereed differently than other teams, which was alluded to, I think, by Suarez, certainly by uh, Felipe Luis after the game. Suarez was making the point a couple of times that the referee, that maybe UEFA should be less concerned with um, the colour of the jerseys and more concerned with Barcelona found because the, uh, the, there was a debate about what jerseys were going to be worn by both teams beforehand. So, uh, yeah, they're pretty annoyed about it. We'll talk to Sid about it. Uh, to, it, it, yeah. it is true, though. They, they, they do... I mean, you know, Mr. Chip. Uh, Mr. Chip is like this kind of Spanish uh, stats maestro. Yeah. Um, I think to be a stats maestro. He was tweeting about this... Uh, basically just had a list of teams that have had the most opposing players sent off against them in the Champions League. Who's top of that list? Like, Jose Mourinho has got this, you know, in his <laughs> office, or it's in storage now. It's in, it's in storage wherever all this, all this massive, his cutouts of himself and photographs of himself that he puts in whatever office he's going to end up working in. It's currently in storage. But among them is this. Uh, teams with most players sent off against them in Champions League, right at the top of that list with 30 opposing players sent off, is Barcelona. Um, well, that's also because they have they traditionally dominated possession and dominated matches and have been fouled an awful lot. Let's be fair about it. Like, for instance, maybe Bayern Munich. How many players have they had sent off against them? 12. 20. 20. 30 Barcelona, 20 is number two. Bayern. Arsenal, 18. Real Madrid, PSV, 16. PSV, interesting to see them so high. What's going on there? I mean, they don't even play that many games in the Champions League. At least you can say Barcelona play a lot of games. They're always in semi-finals, at least. Uh, well, this is our chance. We're in the last 16 of the Champions League. Let's get some guys sent off against us. <laughs> and then Man United, Porto, Leon, and Galatasaray with 14. But, you know, okay, I suppose it's, it's partly a style of play thing, partly a Busquets thing, you know... Um, the, the implication that a lot of people read into it is it's partly a referee's thing as well. Mm. Oh, Barcelona. Well, they're great for the image of the game. I don't know if I necessarily go along with that, but I do, I do find it irritating a little bit. I mean, Barcelona are a great team. I think the best team in the, in the world. Um, but it just I find it annoying to see a game being made too easy for them like that. The next football podcast you're going to hear will be coming live from New York City. We're travelling over with Aer Lingus on Monday, so we'll get that first pod out next Tuesday. So just to be clear that the podcast won't be around on Monday, but it'll be a brilliant opener from New York ready for you on Tuesday. And it's not too late for you to reconnect with friends and family in Manhattan as part of our sold-out live show on the Brass Monkey on Wednesday. We're asking you to email editor at secondcaptains.com with any shout-out that you want broadcast to anybody you know over there. The show will also incorporate images and video, so be creative. Be expressive and please send any embarrassing photos or videos that you deem appropriate. Editor at secondcaptains.com is email address. We're also bringing over a couple of big, big guests for that live show too. Can't wait for it. I also can't wait for Ken's report on sport. Well, it's been a bad 24 hours on for Zlatan Ibrahimovic. No, he's a goal scorer. He was a goal scorer last night. Well, I mean, he... he a sort of goal. He scored a goal. He tackled the ball into the net. But it was the kind of goal where it was such a it was such a bad goal that it's difficult almost to even take credit for it. He'd also missed the one-on-one, uh, whipping the ball way over the crossbar from a position in which he should have scored, and also missed a penalty where he was psyched out by Joe Hart. Ugh. Just so annoying to not score a penalty against Joe Hart, who who was stomping around his his uh, his goal, walking around and around his goal, and then bantering with the referee and... Uh, gurning at, at uh, Zlatan uh, and then it, lo- it obviously looks like Joe Hart's managed to put him off um, but even worse than all that uh, he wakes up today to find um, the news wires in his home uh, country Sweden and indeed all around the world uh, at this stage um, ablaze with uh, news that <laughs> a well respected coach uh, back in Sweden uh, the former uh, leader of the national team Team chef, I think they call them. Of the chief, na- they, they, when they say chef, they mean chief. Oh, you mean national not- athletics team? Yes. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, uh, like the chef to keep or chef de mission or one of those ones. One of those types of things. Good French accent. There. Has basically accused him of doping when he was a Juventus player. 
So last, that time was at Juventus 2004 to 2006. Um, he, <laughs> so Ulf Carlsen, Ulf Carlsen is the name of the guy. He's been described in a lot of places as a doctor, but he's not a doctor. He is a, essentially an athletics coach um, who, you know, has been a, a kind of a high profile coach in uh, Sweden. Uh, and he was doing a kind of a panel discussion event uh, with a couple of other um, sports guys um, at the, uh, the, the Sports Historical Society Cafe, apparently. Uh, Doesn't sound like a venue brimming with controversy, but go on. No, but, but uh, this, this issue is coming up of doping. And uh, in order to illustrate his point about doping, which his point essentially is that actually in team sports, doping is more of a problem now in individual sports because in individual sports, the athletes are under so much scrutiny now. They're tested very rigorously. It's, it's difficult to get away with, whereas in team sports, it's a lot easier. You know, if you're a player on a team, there's a lot of players. It's easier to get away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, he... Uh, to, to pluck an example out of thin air, what about Zlatan? Um, Zlatan put on 10 kilos in six months during his time at Juventus. I think he was doping. That's how it seems to me, said uh, Mr. Carlson. <laughs> Everyone is like, <gasps> you know, and he's kind of looking around going, what, did I say something? And, you know, uh, so they say, uh, well, he, he, he essentially went on, it's, it seems as though maybe he, he said this and was maybe then a little surprised that people were surprised. Oh, how could he be surprised that people were surprised? He's just accused possibly the greatest sportsman his country's ever had of doping. I know, hey, I know. Gone, what did, uh, did do you, you stand by the accusation? Yes, I'm convinced of it. He put on 10 kilos of muscle in six months. It's, it's impossible to do that in a short space of time. Just can't be done. Uh, he, he refers to Albin Ekdal, uh, another Swedish uh, player uh, who was there. He put on eight kilos while he was at the club. Uh, I think there was a culture of it at Juventus. They had a club doctor who was suspended for 22 months. Um, obviously, Zatan never failed a drugs test, but not the only one never to have failed a drugs test. You know, it's not necessarily the... Um, no, I think we've come to understand that it's not the ultimate barometer of whether or not something is happening. Yeah. Um, so so this was obviously... Uh, this was kind of... Wow. You know, can you... Are you serious? Um, so, uh, you know, he'd said, in, in individual sports, they're more exempt from tests than individual athletes. Uh, you know, Zatan went up 10 kilos of muscle in six months. It's impossible. Uh, Albin Ekdal, eight kilos at the same club. Um, so he was then contacted by Sportblad at uh, one of the papers in Sweden who said to him, uh, did you think much about this before you came out and said it? He said, no, we had a panel discussion on all the negative aspects of sport and doping. We highlighted what happened at Juventus in the early 2000s and Sportblad was saying, well, it's even quite serious charges. He says, well, there's no accusation over Zlatan's head. It's not directed at Zlatan Ibrahimovic. What I'm saying is that no one can go of 10 kilograms during that time. <laughs> now, we talked about the situation at Juventus, then mentioned Ibrahimovic because he is such a great icon. If it's about Zlatan or if it's another player, it doesn't matter. But, you know, in purely physiological terms, it's impossible to go up so much in such a short time. And uh, they say, but, you know, is it right to bring up his name? You know, he's never failed a test. Um, and the guy says, Latin Ibrahimovic which was taken as an example. Um, we were talking about what happened at Juventus. Uh, these things are common knowledge. Uh, Juventus had a doctor who was sentenced to 22 months. Um, so he says... Uh, uh, they they say, what do you think Zatan's going to think when he when he hears that you've said been saying this stuff about him, Tra- talking trash? And he says, it's not my job to worry about that. I talked about the general situation. I have nothing to be worried about. It's a shame if he perceives this as a personal accusation. <laughs> it was more a discussion on doping in team sports. Uh, so they say, do you regret mentioning Zatan in connection with this? And he says. Uh, well, it was a bit of an experience by me. I regret, of course, that this has caused a ruckus, but I do not change my mind about the weight gain. When was he at? Uh, when was that event? Two thousand and four. Four to six, I think. I thought it was done. I thought that I thought the doping was done by then. Yeah, but with Juventus, it's always a little there, you know. Juventus. Remember, Zlatan left Juventus just after they got busted back down to private for. Uh, uh, they they had um, nobbled all these referees. And ah, stuff. they they were pushing the pushing the boundaries. Sure, they were corrupting the game. They were looking for a competitive edge. They were doing they they're a club that proved it was prepared to do anything it took to gain <laughs> to gain that edge, those marginal gains. They examined all their assumptions about the game, and then they 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 tested their assumptions and made new assumptions in order to try to get marginal gains. So you know they 
they installed uh they they put in new training pitches you know everything was good they put up screens around the training pitches to stop the wind you know marginal gains they they banned pasta from the cafeteria uh, they doped through players they mobbled a lot of referees <laughs> And you know they they ensured that every player they warmed the towels for the players when they when they were coming in, especially in winter mornings makes a big difference because yeah. it can get it can get cold Small there. Details. You think Italy sunshine, but actually in, in in Turin sometimes you know they had the Winter Olympics in Turin. You know what I mean? So a warm towel can make all the difference. These are the kind of marginal gains I'm talking about. So, uh, so anyway, Zlatan has not yet responded personally. However, um, Express in the Swedish newspaper has. Uh, has contacted his agent Mino Raiola. Oh yeah, always ready to answer the phone to the right uh, to the right journalist. And he says, "We'll sue him." Uh, I'm not an expert, but we have a Swedish lawyer. We're not saying who the lawyer is. That'll come later. Does he have a lawyer yet? I'm not sure. He probably has a lawyer. He says uh, there are always people who hate. So he's he's kind of like he's already you know he's a hater. Maybe Dr. Carlson. Well, Dr. Carlson, as I said, he's erroneously described. I believe erroneously described as a doctor. Maybe he's a former athlete who failed. Maybe he's jealous. This man has made a big mistake. He will have had a life before this statement and a life after it. <laughs> Menacing stuff from Mino here. Um, we had plenty of doping controls at Juventus. That time was tested between 15 and 20 times. He was tested all the time. Juventus were put under the microscope. It's ridiculous. The facts are not there. We can prove that it is not true. At all the clubs Zlatan has been at, he doesn't even take aspirin. Zlatan is calm. He's more embarrassed that he missed that penalty yesterday. He said this is not the arena to respond to these kinds of allegations. He will not dignify that with a response, uh, apart from a legal, uh, legal response. So we'll see how that works. Yeah, it's pretty interesting con- considering how, well, considering the lack of appetite for delving too much into the world of drugs and football that's well I'm not going to say every football fan doesn't want to know but certainly there seemed to be a reaction after the Sunday Times story at the weekend uh, a little bit of reluctance maybe to delve too deeply well have you, our dreams shattered as football supporters if it was a hero like Slatan, who was such a hero you know I mean and worshipped you know by a whole generation of Swedish youth I think 80% of them would be going, well, of course. You know, say, for instance, in a hypothetical future, which I, I can't stress couldn't be more different from the world that we actually inhabit. But imagine a hypothetical world in which Zlatan was caught, banged to rights. They'd somehow got a bunch of frozen samples from 2005, and it turned out that he was glowing, right, as they say, glowing. And I bet 80% of the Swedish youth would say, well, of course. How else are you supposed to compete in, in football these days? I mean, thank God he was doing it. Would he, would, you know, imagine all the, the amazing things that he did. Would he have been able to do all those, you know, with his paltry, his meager natural inheritance? Of course, you've got to make use of sports science. We live in a scientific world now. You know, the singularity is only a couple of years off. We're only a few years off robots being able to play football better than humans. You know, how are we supposed to be able to compete if we don't even take the medicines that are available to us? You could have a total switcheroo in people's attitudes to doping. You know, he's such a legend that it could change people's minds on whether or not it was a bad thing. That's all hypothetical because he's never failed the test. This guy, Ulf Carson, has had a life up till this moment and apparently a very different, more miserable life from, from this point on. So we'll leave that story there and see if there's any more developments. Atletico Madrid, you wanted to talk a bit more about them? Oh, just, yeah. Well, we, we were mentioning the whole Torres thing. Oh, yeah. Um, the Atletico Madrid CEO actually agrees with me. Uh, he went nuts after the game. He was like, Barcelona don't need this kind of assistance. When things like the last night happen, it makes us think we can't compete in an equal playing field. Our players don't deserve this for the amount of effort they put in. And then he, he went, he kind of started outlining his conspiracy theory. Uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge heading that European Clubs Association, always trying to, you know, couldn't we not just have a European Super League, which was just Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Bayern playing each other? You know, every sort of Wednesday and plus, Saturday, like, plus one Premier League team, maybe just to round it out. Maybe a, a rotating Ma- Premier League team. Manchester United, you know, they bring in the eyeballs. You know, <laughs> give us someone to. It's like a, a you know, whichever of the three teams isn't playing, the other team gets to beat up Man United <laughs> twice a week. Um, Rummenigge wants the teams he thinks are in charge to go through to the semi-finals. And he'll end up getting just that, says Atletico Madrid's CEO. Football does not belong to Europe's big clubs. Football belongs to everyone. That's the way it should be. We want to be treated equally. If what Torres did wanted to send off, then the same criteria should be applied to Luis Suarez. Football cannot be a game where the big teams dictate the rules. Totally agree. 
I only care what Sid Lowe thinks again. He'll be the final arbiter on this. Okay. As always. And we'll put it, Spanish football. we put it to Sid. There was an article by Claudio Ranieri on the Players' Tribune. Ooh. I haven't heard of that for a couple of months. What was the last time we were talking about it? Who was, who was talking? Oh, it was Jerome Boateng, wasn't it? Jerome Boateng. And yeah. The Art of Defending by Jerome Boateng, which was like this, ex- this exquisitely crafted... You know, gay to these like <laughs> long form piece by Jerome Boateng, <laughs> a, a talented young man. Uh, you know, not many people are great in uh, two such different areas, but that's uh, that's the sort of polyvalency of Jerome Boateng. But anyway, Claudio Ranieri has penned this uh, article in the Players Tribune. The Players Tribune, uh, for if you don't know, is a site was this set up by. Which of the, the baseball? G- Jeter, is it? Well, it was Derek Jeter, wasn't it? Yeah, Derek Jeter with a couple of other guys. I think Blake Griff and the NBA star was uh, part of the setup as well. And one or two others. And the idea was to essentially put journalists out of work, Ken. I mean, they didn't say that as such, but it was yeah. to connect with the fans directly, a players-led, players-driven Well, the journalists, I think, s- still are getting work out of it, but it's Might very much below decks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're kind Take of... the byline out of sports journalism, is what their <laughs> tagline should be. Yeah, so the, so I'm sure someone is getting thrown a few shekels, but <laughs> certainly none of the glory. But Claudio Ranieri, I mean, he, maybe he did write this one. I, I'd say Jerome Boateng is a better writer than Claudio Ranieri, judging based on comparing just these this small sam- these small sample size. But uh, Ranieri says, you know, uh, I remember my first meeting with the chairman when I arrived at Leicester City. He sat down and said, Claudio, this is a very important year for the club. It is very important for us to stay in the Premier League. We have to stay safe. My reply was, okay, sure. We will work hard on the training ground and try to achieve this. So, 40 points, that was the goal. So they, But I did not dream I would open the paper on April 4th and see Leicester City on top of the table with 69 points. Last year, on this same day, the club was at the bottom of the table. Unbelievable. Mm. So he goes on to describe how he did it. He says, I am 64 years old, so I do not go out much. My wife has been with me for 40 years, so on my off days, I try to stay close to her. We go out to the lake by our house, or maybe if we are feeling adventurous, we watch a movie. Oh, Claudio, come on. He's not really this boring, is he? Come on, Claudio, he's got more going on. He's got more going on than that. But lately, I have indeed been hearing the noise from all over the world. You can just imagine Claudio Ranieri, like, sitting in the, in the at a wooden table in his back garden, like, outside this sort of Italian... Italian villa, you know, with orange groves just outside Leicester, right, <laughs> where, he, where he's living. Uh, and he can't, you know, he just can't help. Uh, the, the noise from the outside world is coming in. Uh, it's impossible to ignore. I've heard we even have some new supporters in America following us. But it's literally just, it's, it's the guy who does the paper round, delivers the paper. That's his connection to the outside world. He's like, you know, you're pretty big around Europe now and the world, Claudio. Uh, and Claudio's like, Thank oh, you, Thank come you. in, break bread with us, <laughs> you know. But he's like, uh, uh, he, perhaps you have heard their names now. Players who were considered too small or too slow for other big clubs. N'Golo Kante, Jamie Vardy, Wes Morgan, Danny Drinkwater, Riyad Mahrez. When I arrived, my first day of training, and I saw the quality of these players, I knew how good they could be. Well, I knew we had a chance to survive in the Premier League. This player, Kante. He was running so hard that I thought he must have a pack full of batteries hidden in his shorts. <laughs> he never stopped running in training. I had to tell him, hey, N'Golo, slow down, slow down. Don't run after the ball every time, okay? He says to me, boss, yes, boss, yes, okay, boss. Ten seconds later, I look over, and he's running again. I tell him, one day, I'm going to see you cross the ball and then finish the cross with a header yourself. He's unbelievable. But he's not the only key. He's not the only key. Jamie Vardy, for example. This is not a footballer. This is a fantastic horse. He um, goes on, you know, like this. Uh, he says, the only thing he says to Vardy is, he says, you're free to move however you want, but you must help us when we lose the ball. That's all I ask. If you start to press the opposition, all of your teammates will follow you. They also said there was a translation. I think thoroughbred might have been the word that, he was looking for there. Rather a fantastic than fa- horse. Fantastic. Maybe just a wonder horse. Champion the wonder horse. Yeah. Vardy the, the wonder horse, I, I suppose yeah. it would be. Um, but, you know, the blah, blah, the players, f- players work really hard. Fans sing their hearts out. Fantastic electricity. Before every game, I said, come on, boys. Come on. Clean sheet today. No clean sheet. I tried every motivation. And so finally, I offered them a pizza. <sighs> we know this, Clannick Give us something new. Finally, before the game at Christmas, I said, come on, boys. Come on. 
I offer you a pizza if you get a clean sheet. Of course, my players made a clean sheet against Crystal Palace. 1-0. So I stood by our deal and I took my players to Peter Pizzeria. Peter Pizzeria and... Pizzeria? Pizzeria in Leicester City Square. But I had a surprise for them when we got there. I said, you have to work for everything. You work also for your pizza. We will make our own. So we went to the kitchen with the ah, dough and the, the cheese and the sauce. We tossed our own pies. It was very good, too. I enjoyed many slices. What can I say? I'm an, an Italian man. I love my pizza and my pasta. <laughs> <laughs> now we make a lot of clean sheets. A dozen clean sheets after the pizza. I think this is no coincidence. <laughs> so here you go. So he, so he talks about how we're going to show the world. We're showing the world what can be achieved. You know, we dream and so on. The end of it goes... Uh, you know, people out there, all the young players out there, all the kids out there, they say to themselves, how do I arrive at the top level? If Vardy can do this, if Kanti can do this, maybe I can do this too. What do you need to arrive? A big name? No. A big contract? No. You just need to keep an open mind, an open heart, a full battery, and run free. Who knows? Maybe at the end of the season, we will have two pizza parties. That's pretty nice. Yeah. Not much insight, but pretty nice. Not a great deal of insight into what's actually going on at Leicester just City. More, just more detail on the one story that everyone's already heard, which is that they got a load of pizza after their first clean sheet. Didn't realise they made it themselves. That, that sounds like fun, actually. I've never tossed a pizza. Have you not? I mean... Uh, it, it, I, I, I don't think I have either. I, I made one in home economics, um, mm -hmm. but it was... Uh, Any good? No... I mean, I put too much toppings on, and I didn't quite get the lightness in the base. That's the that's the issue. Too much toss toppings. There can't be too much. The tossing, the, you know, the thing where you where you've got this sort of disc of dough which gets bigger and bigger, and you kind of you know throwing it, and you, it looks quite skillful and kind of enjoyable. I didn't do that. I think I just rolled it with a rolling pin. Oh yeah. So I had this dense pastry-like substance uh, smothered in cheese and mushrooms. Actually, I'm getting hungry now. I haven't made a... It is, it's around lunchtime we're recording this, and I just realised I haven't eaten much. That's one approach, anyway, to hearing how, uh, how a top team, this is one of Europe's leading teams, Premier League team, the leaders of the Premier League, uh, have managed to do what they're doing. Pizza. Um, pizza and, you know, a bit of banter and full hearts, uh, so on and so forth. Another approach is, uh, well, this is actually a bylined piece by a journalist, so first of all, you you got you got to remember that you're you're stepping away from the actual source of the font of the knowledge, and you've got this, you've got this, um, you know, unscrupulous, this probably amoral, uh, you know, probably dishonest figure uh, interposing himself. But this is what you end up getting when a journalist writes something, you know, with with some inquiries. This in this case, the journalist is Raphael Honigstein in the uh, in the Guardian, and his piece is about Thomas Tuchel. Dortmund manager, who is uh, who Dortmund play Liverpool later on tonight. So all of the focus uh, has really been on Jurgen Klopp. Uh, you know, even Milner saying, "Well, it's easy for us. No, no one's going to pay any attention to us since we've got here. It's all about him. Uh, everyone just wants to talk to him." Uh, Raphael Honigstein has written about Tuchel, and uh, this is a coach who's managed to get that team that had started to really fall apart. Uh, in Klopp's last season mm. and get everybody playing really well again. Some of the players better than ever, you know, Mkhitaryan, Aubameyang, these guys are playing their best ever football. Um, and how has he managed to do that? This article, uh, I find, you know, despite the fact that it's written by, a, you know, a journalist, is actually more informative and, you know, more analytical. And to my mind, I feel as though I know more about what just happened than when I read Claudio Ranieri's article. So Raphael says, you know, uh, during his sabbatical, Tuchel sabbatical, he, he was, just as Klopp was, the coach of Mainz before he took over Dortmund. During his sabbatical, but he, he took a little bit of time off in between. He looked at other team sports. He visited the Brentford owner, Matthew Benham, to understand the role of mathematics and stats in football. He versed himself further in the teachings of Professor Wolfgang Schulhorn. The sports scientist theory of differential learning contends the players do not learn by repetition and perfecting drills which is, you know, the way that a lot of coaches do things. You know, Roy Hodgson, Giovanni Trapattoni. Okay, these are maybe slightly older coaches. Yeah, even, even more, I don't know, even your age coaches, I think, do. Uh, a lot of them accept that repetition is the way to do it. Repetition, repetition, yeah. repetition, repetition. How did you learn your, t your, your you know, two-time table zone? 
can't remember. Did you learn them intuitively to by, by adapting your technique to a never-ending stream of problems? No. You used them by just saying them over and over again until they were stuck in your head. You couldn't get rid of them. Um, so this is what he says. That the theory of differential learning contends players do not learn by repetition and perfecting drills, but by adapting their technique intuitively to a never-ending stream of problems. At the turn of the century, Sheryl Hearn's ideas were adopted by the Barcelona youth coach, Paco Cerullo, who later became Guardiola's mentor. Tuchel, who puts out every cone himself, it's every cone on the training field, huh? <laughs> has his players practicing on slippery, extremely narrow or extremely wide pitches, making them control the ball with their knees before passes. He instructs defenders to hold on to tennis balls to stop them pulling the shirts of opponents. The aim is to make training so complex and mentally demanding that the game feels relaxing by contrast. At first we wondered what these things had to do with football, but we realized quickly that they worked, says Nevin Sabodic. Some exercises last two and a half hours, but because they always change, it doesn't feel like that. I don't know. I want to, you know, maybe it's just a fluke. Maybe it's just the kind of it's a one-off here, but it's it's just he, I think he's managed to tell me quite a lot about what's actually happening there. But I know Derek Jeter is a regular listener to the podcast, Ken. And the other the, the reporter's sport, and he'll be thinking, no, couldn't be possible. And you know what the really interesting thing is, Owen? Dortmund's players aren't allowed to eat any pizza at all. <laughs> they literally are not allowed to eat pizza. I mean, if you've seen Tuckle, he looks like a wraith. He's like. He went on this low calorie thing. I don't know if he's, I don't know exactly what his reason was. You know, he's kind of calorific restriction. He obviously thinks it makes him healthier in some way. Maybe he wants to live to, you know, 150 or whatever. In fact, if you look at the Irish Times, I see one of the most read articles today uh, has to do with the uh, benefits to longevity of starving yourself. Well, not starving yourself, just eating probably about as much as you should as opposed to as much as you want. Right, you know, if you eat as much as you should, maybe you're going to feel a little bit hungry. That's not a bad thing. You know, if you stuff yourself in the way that we do, you know, you're going to get fat, get old, and um, have, have lots of health problems. Tuckle is not going to do that. He's not going to let his players eat uh, refined carbs either, let alone go to an actual pizza place and make their own pizzas. He's banned the deliveries of Italian food that uh, Dortmund players apparently used to like. Everything, if they have to eat carbs, it has to be whole grain. Um, you know, oh, please stop talking about food. Look, this is literally all I've eaten today. Oh, you're holding... Owen is holding a, an, a limp uh, banana skin. He's eaten the banana. It didn't look... But I wonder how long before he starts... Eating the skin. on the skin. <laughs> it doesn't look great either. I think it was a couple of days past its, past its peak. No, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. On peak, you know, a little bit of brown in the, in the yellow. That's, that just indicates a bit of ripeness. You know, Simon's giving a good nod to you there, Kenya. Yeah, yeah there's not, nothing wrong. You know, people have this idea that a banana should be this bright yellow... You know, that's just they've watched too many cartoons. You know, that's not the way it is in the real world. Um, I've just noticed I've got a bit left. Um, see at the bottom. Oh, you've seen it. Well, you, you take care of that. I'll, I'll, I'll just read out the rest of this. Um, the last thing that we're just mentioning is the, yeah, the Panama Papers. We, we mentioned them briefly the other day. It looks as though Lionel Messi maybe doesn't have as much to worry about as from this as with certain other issues relating to his finances. Um People who did get drawn into it, though, included um, the FIFA ethics judge, <laughs> who's had to resign. Oh, no. He's had to resign um, after the uh, data leak. You know, basically a law firm that was helping rich people to avoid paying tax through a variety of, you know, creative methods. Uh, he's been drawn into that and has now resigned. Uh, but there was also a police raid at UEFA, um, which involves... Uh, suspected wrongdoing relating to the sale of Champions League TV rights for Ecuador. Um, now, I can't imagine that the Champions League TV rights deal for Ecuador was necessarily a huge deal in financial terms. However, uh, if it's been done in a corrupt way, then it's been done in a corrupt way. The signature of Gianni Infantino, um, who was then the legal director of UEFA um, and is now the president of FIFA, appears in this document. Apparently, he's not suspected of having done anything wrong, but it is obviously just one of those kind of facepalm FIFA moments where it's like, well, you know, meet the new boss. That's it for Kennedy's Report on Sport. Owen McDevitt. The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt. From Ireland's second captain show. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. Second captain. Those guys are like, those guys are like family to me, man. Oh.
This is like the coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make it. I'm talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> All right. He said I was a fucking psycho. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. World War. If you say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let's get over to Paris. Miguel Delaney is still there, having covered the game last night. I think it was your first time at the Parc de France. Uh, Miguel, was it an, an impressive setup? Um, yeah, very, very impressive, I would say. I mean, it's a great stadium. Actually, I think I prefer it as a stadium to the Stade de France. And that, that's not for reasons related to our history in the Stade de France. But it's just, uh, it, I think it's just, it, it, it's more of a football ground. And it, like, for all the perceptions of PSG as a club, given when they were founded and given their new ownership, um, the, I have to say the support was incredible. About an hour and a half before kickoff, the stadium was empty bar about kind of 25 fans behind either goals, about 50 in total. Yet the sound of them already at that point uh, was, it was really loud, and it continued like that throughout the game. Like it, this wasn't kind of one of these, uh, you know, for, for for all their massive VIP box at PSG and all the kind of celebrities that go there. This wasn't kind of the, one of these nouveau riche clubs affairs. It was, uh, it, it was, a, it was a proper atmosphere. Ah, Miguel, don't stop talking about the fans. I want to know how you felt enfolded in the bosom of Qatar's hospitality. Uh, well, actually, now to be fair, it's um, a lot of journalists actually said it last night. Particularly, I mean, Manchester City. If you if you if you go to City. The, the, the hospitality at their club is, uh, well, the food in particular is excellent. And many of the uh, Mank Pack commented that um, that's one thing that the, uh, the QSI haven't really spent their money on. Oh, really? A few, few, few poxy sandwiches. Oh, dear. That sounds a bit like uh, certain other And the Wi-Fi is not great either. The, 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 <laughs> the Wi-Fi died at bang on full time just when I had to file. So, you know. Yeah. We, we, they didn't really extend much of the hospitality to us in that sense. Well, I mean, it was a very entertaining game. I mean, there was a lot of stuff happening. It was, it was kind of unpredictable. Um, the only predictable thing about it was the abusive uh, messages that I keep getting from people um, saying, ha-ha, David Luiz, there's your boy David Luiz again. It looks like he's not such a great player after all. Um, <laughs> Which, which begins to get really annoying for me after a while, Miguel. I want to hear what you what you actually thought of David Luiz's performance because I actually thought it was another impressive performance by him. Well, I actually thought it was like Zlatan's performance in many ways. And that they're both players now that because of the, the, I suppose the way they're covered, there's this permanent narrative around them, and all their high profile moments get particularly highlighted. Like like Zlatan said, three shockers, but then you know at least responded with a goal. And it was almost similar with David Luiz. He had these two huge, high-profile moments. But beyond that, he was actually fairly solid. And, I mean, City, I suppose, the two goals came from... Um, well, I suppose the two goals came from rare, proper attacks because PSG kind of kept him at bay for most of it, although that might have been down to the way City played. But, yeah, on the whole... I suppose there was one absolute howler from Luiz. But even the... Uh, which, which howler are you talking about? Well, for the for the for the goal itself. For the oh first come goal, on! One. Come on, that wasn't his fault. Ah, it was. Uh... Oh no! Come on, that that goal. Uh, for, uh, I mean, the ball is lost in midfield. Fernandinho or Yaya Toure, I think, won the ball from Cavani. Fernandinho came through. David Luiz was in a covering position, and Fernandinho picked out an amazing pass. He put it through the only meter that he had to to put through. There was nothing David Luiz could do. I mean, he could go, he could have gone and and ran over and marked Kevin De Bruyne. And then that would have left a massive gap in the centre, and they could have just stormed straight through that. There wasn't, he was exposed by the mistake in front of him. Well, I suppose, to be fair, that, that brings up something about PSG themselves as well. I think, and you could see it last night, they're, they're still a team that basically, it's not a properly cohesive unit yet. So, I mean, this could explain some of Luis's errors. It's basically just a collection of very expensive players with, a few, with the rest filled in. And there is almost a sense watching them. They're, they're, they're waiting for the bigger players to just produce. And, and it probably lacks Ferrati in that, in that way as well, which probably left Luis exposed. But let's be fair, he, he does have a history of these moments. But like, I do agree with you to an extent that because those moments are so overplayed, that it kind of obscures the rest of what he does. I mean, I saw him have, have some excellent games with Chelsea, particularly in defence in midfield. Mm, but mm. There, there is, he, 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 he is still you know, prone to a brain freeze. And I, I'd probably lean towards last night was part of it.
But, is, but, beyond, is, but beyond that, he did show a lot. I mean, uh, he, he he won the penalty very, with a, I suppose, an in- quote-unquote intelligence yeah. that um, a lot of people wouldn't credit, credit him with. Is uh, Sergio Aguero a world-class striker, Miguel? Yes, I, I think he's... How many uh, goals did Sergio Aguero score last night? Yeah, well, it's, one, it's one game, though. We can't, we can't how many goals? How many goals did, did Sergio Aguero score last night? He usually, score, he usually scores, right? And he's up against one of the worst defenders <laughs> in the world. How many goals yeah. did he score? Zero. Although to be fair, he could, could, have, no could, have, tapped, could have tapped in uh, the, the second goal had he wanted to. But you know, what's, your, what's your point, there? I'm just saying. I, I think that if Sergio Aguero was up against one of the world's worst defenders, he, he might have scored a goal. And it seemed to me as though he got snuffed out. People talk about this David Luiz because David Luiz had a slightly inelegant movement as that pass from Fred. That brilliant pass. That superlative. Well, there was also eye the of the needle. Goal. Eye of the needle pass. Well, the, sec- the second goal, what's he supposed to do? Dufford took him apart on RT. Well, I'm sure Damien Duff at least gave him a bit of praise for winning the penalty, right? Uh, I didn't know. I assume. Do so. I assume. I assume. Dufford Duffer loves to dive. Put, he has a, been put a little not green not tick yeah. next to the name <laughs> of David Luiz. The, the, the dark arts, as he calls them. But in the second goal. Uh, David, David Luiz could see that there were already players covering the centre half position. So, yeah, this was Duffer's argument for people who weren't watching that Luiz essentially stopped tracking back, that there was a little five, six yard run he could have made, which would have covered the near post and cut out the pass coming in. Whereas he kind of hung back and, and was more concerned about players who might make a late run into the box by the looks of it. Yeah, which which to me seems seems okay. I mean, he was covering an area, it was the guys in the middle who who made a mess of it on, on that occasion. I don't know, I mean, we, we could talk about David Luiz all night. Can we? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think that uh, the the other thing maybe we should talk about, Miguel, is is Joe Hart uh, becoming a a, a psych-out master? I mean, there was a a time there when we thought maybe Joe Hart was a a kind of a a grinning uh, idiot who was incapable of psyching out a penalty taker. I mean, Pirlo made him look foolish. But now, you know, he saved the penalty from Messi in the Champions League. He saved the penalty from Zlatan Ibrahimovic in the Champions League. You know, maybe he's uh, maybe he's getting the hang of this. Uh, he, he, I think it's yeah, I think it's possibly half a coincidence though in that sense. I think it just wasn't a particularly good penalty. He read it well. I'm not, I'm not sure whether he psyched it out. Granted, he, did, he didn't try. And what was the the phrase Pirlo used about him in the in the 2012 shoot a gurning buffoon or something like that? Might have been. <laughs> it mightn't have been that harsh. But no, there, there was there was none of that. I think I suppose. I mean, there can be a tendency to read too into it. He possibly just a good penalty uh, saver at this point. It's, it's, it's something he, he's developed a skill for. Uh, he, he, I suppose I'm, t- I'm talking here slightly, I have to go against myself, because uh, we got Joe Hart in the mix zone afterwards, but I'll be basically lynched by my colleagues if I reveal any of that before half ten tonight. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm sure some people are only listening to this after half ten tonight, so maybe just speak to those guys. Yeah. Uh, speak to those <laughs> listeners. Joe, <laughs> Joe Hart was doing the rounds, actually, of the media last night. I mean, he was beaming all over the TV. He was like Donald Trump. He was, you, couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't get away from him. And I, I, I do hope that someone raised the issue of Fernando's goal. I mean, I'm sure somebody did. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, Tony, I th- Tony O'Donoghue did mention it. Right? Yeah. Because Schoolboy error, Tony O'Donoghue called he, it. Yeah, I mean, you want to see in Joe Hart's reaction on BT Sport anyway when, when this Fernando... It was like he hadn't thought what he was going to say at all uh, when, that, when that came up. And he just sort of went, yeah, well, what can you say, really? You know, schoolboy, schoolboy error. Um, I don't know. He didn't. He didn't seem too happy. But I mean, okay, you can't. You can't reveal what what you heard. Uh, the explosive words of Joe Hart. So I just want to ask, uh, what do you think is going to happen in the second leg? Because uh, although the statistics suggest City are, are now um, favourites to go through, I really wouldn't be surprised if uh, if Paris Saint Germain managed to uh, take them apart uh, in the return leg. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure if PSG themselves are good enough to take them apart at this point. Um, although I think if Verratti comes back, that would be pretty important. But, I mean, the one expectation I'd have is another really high-scoring game, which could mean it could, you know, could come into away goals or high-scoring enough to go, to go either way. I think this will be, this is almost really a 50-50 in that sense because, right, even, you mentioned that stat there, and I think it is something like 79% of teams that have scored the away goal and a two-all draw go through. But, yeah, as you say, this is the sort of match where PSG will be equally capable of scoring the same amount of goals in the second leg, and, and so will City. So it could end up uh, one of these, another chaotic game in that sense, and certainly one filled with errors. I mean, that was the thing about it. it was, the reason it was so entertaining was not because Stars turned it on or Reguero was at his best, Di Maria, Zlatan. It, it was because I think every, basically every key player on the pitch, by Kevin De Bruyne, 
made a massive mistake, including actually Joe Hart, I was at it, because I thought he was at, at fault for the goal, as Fernando was. Oh, really? Well, I, there was two, I was watching it back afterwards last night. There was two, I mean, first of all, right, he, he does gesture to him to play it right, but why did he play the pass in the first place to a player who's clearly under pressure? Well, he was, wasn't under that much pressure. I mean, come on. You know, he had, he had his, I mean, Hart played the ball and then he was pointing. He, he gave Fernando the ball and also instructions as to what to do with it, and Fernando just completely ignored him. But, but A, he doesn't give him the call that he's under such pressure. Then, B, when, 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 he, when he's, the player is, clearly is under pressure, Hart reacts like a geriatric. I mean, he kind of hobbles across the five yards. He, he could have stopped that. Uh, you know, the big man, he, he knew he couldn't stop the big man in that position. But one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Miguel, you mentioned Angel Di Maria there. He did, uh, he did a fairly interesting interview over the weekend, I think it was with the BBC. Uh, he really trashed Man United out of it. You know, it's, it's, not, ni- it's not nice to say certain things, uh, you know, but let me say these certain things, more or less, is, is how Di Maria went. They didn't let, it's more that they didn't let me settle properly than I couldn't settle. I left that team are still playing the same way, out of the European competitions, far from being champions of the Premier League. I don't think it was my fault. <laughs> so he's, he's clearly not accepting too much responsibility for what happened there. Um, you know, what do you make of it? Is he, does he look like a player Manchester United could do with now as he plays for PSG, or is, is he just a guy who has a poor attitude, who's coasting in an easy uh, setup? Um, I kind of agree with him, I have to say. I think um, he, he's... He's a player that Manchester United could do it, but it's almost a shame for them in that sense that because they possibly appointed the wrong manager at the wrong time, they've lost one of the few proper stars they've managed to get into the team at that point. I mean, just uh, only last week I heard a story that Mourinho was mildly irritated that because um, his, his agent, uh, Mendes, was obviously involved in the deal, but he was mildly irritated that Manchester United were, uh, were able to get you know, a player that he really liked and that a rival was being strengthened in, the, in that sense. Um, but, of course, you, you know, through all that, Di Maria never wanted to be United. But even then, for, for all, I mean, that, it's almost been a bit of revisionism about all this, and it's something you always hear, always, always look, just looking to, get out, to find a way out of the club. Well, if you remember, he, he didn't really want to go there, yet within a month of signing, he was playing some brilliant stuff, and there was the, the amazing chip against Leicester, and he looked like he was willing to put himself into it, provided it was the right setup, which is and and you would generally give one of the most expensive players and a star you've signed the right setup. But of course, Van Gaal was totally unwilling to do that. And once it developed, I think it just completely subdued Di Maria. I mean, he, you know, to to massively place drop here. I was at the Cop America last summer, and like we were following the Argentinian team around a lot. But all like, he was at United at the time, and all the talk throughout the tournament around the camp was basically. I mean, there was one particular quote used that they felt that Van Gaal had completely sapped Di Maria of his football rhythm and life, which I think is completely true. And I think it, was, it, it almost kind of worked both ways. Because Van Gaal was trying to force a very talented player into a system that didn't suit him, it then had an effect on the player, and it just, it just brought worse and worse at Di Maria. Now, he's probably not blameless in the sense that once he realised this wasn't happening, he just wanted out. But I would almost say the, the first source of the problem was Van Gaal's needlessly uh, rigid system. And I think it, it is, if Van Gaal is to go in the summer, it's almost a pity for United that you know, they, they, they lost a player like that before they lost Van Gaal. Miguel, I know our listeners are feeling for you having to eat poxy sandwiches in a beautiful stadium in one of the nicest cities in Europe. Miguel Delaney in Paris, thank you. Thank you, thanks, lads. Good luck. Just before we lavish too much praise on Joe Hart as some sort of penalty-saving guru, mm. it is worth remembering that he was comfortably outsmarted by Harry Kane earlier in the season. Oh, Harry Kane just did it. What did Harry Kane do again? Did he smack it into the he, middle of the goal? He had a chat. Joe, well, Joe Hart had a chat with him. It's amazing. The penalty taker usually doesn't particularly instigate these conversations. It's generally seen that they're the ones who just have to focus on their job. Uh, so then he said, this is what, Joe, uh, what Kane says about Joe Hart. I think you're going to go down the middle. And I said, okay. And then I put it down the middle. He added with a smile, knowing that Hart had predicted the outcome of the penalty, yet dived the wrong way. Mm. So yeah, that's I'm reading that from an article here. Yeah, yeah he he does um, he does believe in in having a go, Joe Hart. Uh, you know, in these penalty situations, he he does try to uh, he tries to do as much as he can. He's not one of these goalkeepers who just you know stands there in a kind of demure manner um, and waits for the penalty to be taken and then tries to guess which way the balls go go and go and get that ball. It certainly doesn't do him any harm though, does it? 
I mean, it doesn't it doesn't affect his own chances of saving it negatively. I don't. It? I don't. He was ridiculed around so. the Pirlo one, but just because. But I mean, Pirlo would have scored that regardless. You know, uh, it's just it just looked ridiculous because Pirlo was so calm and cool. It raises the stakes, I suppose. Uh, if he saves it, he gets more credit. It's like oh, hard hits like that, the penalty taker. If he doesn't save it, he looks more foolish. You know, because usually when a goalkeeper concedes a penalty, nobody really blames the goalkeeper. It's just like, well, that's usually what happens. But a, a goalkeeper who's really um, tried to, who's drawn a lot of attention to himself in, in the build-up to it, who then is easily beaten, particularly if it's in a contemptuous fashion, <laughs> as, as Pirlo managed to do, uh, it does make you look more foolish. But, you know, Joe Hart's prepared to take those uh Sort of slings and arrows if it means uh, improving improving his chances by a couple of percent. Sidlo Real Madrid were beaten 2 0 by Wolfsburg last night. What exactly happened? It looked as though they started pretty well. They were looking like they were going to thrash Wolfsburg so much in the first 10 minutes. Maybe they thought this is going to be easy. We can just coast along here, even though they forgot the part where they had to score some goals. Yeah, I think there's an element of that, isn't there? I mean, it, it, it's curious because after the game, Zinedine Zidane said that he felt the problem was that Madrid didn't start with the intensity necessary. And he's talked a lot since he took over in, in January about, about starting strongly, about going for teams, about setting the kind of, if you like, the tone of the game in those opening five or ten minutes. But actually, last night, I thought their opening five or ten minutes were good. You know, they, they played, felt really quite well for 10, 10 or 15, but then completely lost the plot. I think that, Honestly, I think that what we saw last night was not all that surprising. Now, before you jump on me and say, hang on, you didn't predict this. No one predicted this. I, didn't, I thought they'd win comfortably. But what I mean by not all that surprising was that a lot of what we saw last night, I think we've seen rather a lot from Real Madrid. You look at their games under Zidane, for example, their away games. And funny enough, I was just putting together a list of these just, just, before, just before we started speaking. And they won 2-1 away in Las Palmas, a last-minute winner, which was extremely lucky. A 3-1 win away at Levante a team that are bottom of the table at the moment, and they were extremely lucky then as well. A 1-1 draw in Malaga, lucky to draw. Um, a 2-1 win in Granada, a late winner from, from Modric when they played dreadfully. And a 1-1 draw at Betis. Those are their away games in the league under Zidane, apart from, of course, the Clasico at the weekend. And so while you come off the Clasico into this and you think, wow, this is an incredible change. And I think even in the Clasico, there were moments when you look at them and think, this isn't a team that really knows what it's doing. And I thought that's what we saw last night. We saw a team with no real identity, no real sense of structure or pattern or, or idea about how they want to attack. And they came horribly unstuck. That said, of course, had it not been for what I think personally is a really ropey penalty and had Madrid um, managed to, to capitalise on those, those first minutes, which were really quite good, then perhaps it would have been different. But they... They showed no, I thought they showed no identity and no, no real personality last night. Well, the way you're talking about it, it makes it sound like uh, you know, a real mess, the kind of mess that's so, so much of a mess that it's difficult to know who to point the finger at. I mean, who are they mm. pointing the finger at? Well, I mean, look, it, it is a mess. I mean, the weird thing is, I mean, again, to come back to that, that, that idea of contradictory, the contradictoriness, if there is such a word, contradictory nature, I suppose, of, of, of Real Madrid, is that this is a team that has just come from the Camp Nou, where they're the first team to beat Barcelona in, in 39 games, a team that's got such good players that they could still win the European Cup. They've got good enough players, they certainly can t could turn this round in the second leg and go through. But th th there is a kind of a, a, an all-round problem. Who are people blaming today? Well, there's a little bit of accusation uh, at Zidane, who I, I think managed the changes uh, a, a little questionably. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's quite a lot of accusation levelled at Danilo, which I think is a little bit facile, to be honest, because, of course, he's the one player that didn't play in the Classico. There were some, some, some awkward stats about him basically not doing anything in the game. I think it's a bit facile. I mean, I agree with you, by the way. I mean, he played dreadfully, but I think it's a bit facile that, you know, tell you what, this team has changed from one game to the next. Let's blame the right back. Well, yeah. Does the right-back really condition absolutely everything that everyone else does? I, I, I really don't think he does. But, of course, there's an underlying issue there, which is there is an assumption which I partly buy into, but I'm not sure if I entirely buy into it. There's an assumption that Danilo is partly in the side because of the desire for, at boardroom level for him to play. And that when it's not quite so clear-cut, Danilo, Carvajal, maybe not too much of a difference. OK, Danilo can play this one. Um, so he's taken a lot, of, a lot of stick. There's been a little bit of criticism as well for the two creative midfielders uh, Tony Cruz and, and Luka Modric but not a huge amount but, but I think that's really where the focus has been. It's, been it's been on Danilo in the back four and a little bit on Zidane because again uh, and, and I say this as someone who tends to defend, defend him again Sergio Ramos was absolutely dreadful <laughs> Yeah and uh, well actually I wanted to bring up Sergio Ramos but more in the context of Fernando Torres we've been debating mm. this sending off and Torres' comments 
afterwards, Sid, Ken reckons, well, I reckon that he showed Sergio Ramos levels of rashness in getting a red card. Ken thinks he was hard done by and agrees that uh, agrees with Torres and Atletico that really Barcelona are the player, the team he should have had a, sent off, a player sent off, namely Luis Suarez. Where do you stand? Uh, you know where I stand, funnily enough. I agree with both of you. Um, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me explain what I mean. Um, Fernando Torres made, made one challenge which was entirely unnecessary, which he got a yellow card for. Mm. He then made another which was entirely unnecessary, which he didn't get a yellow card for. And he was a little fortunate not to. He then made a third, and this is all in the space of, I think, what, 20 minutes, I think, 15 or 20 minutes. He then makes a third, which is entirely unnecessary and does get sent off. Now, I think, personally, um, that, that I don't like seeing a player go for, for so little. Because really and truly, neither of them were, were particularly awful challenges. But they were unnecessary and they were a little bit foolish. And, and in, that, in that sense, he, he kind of made it easy to referee. And I, I think European rulebook in hand, and certainly Spanish rulebook in hand, he was right to be sent off. That said, the thing I think that makes it difficult for Atletico Madrid fans to swallow, and quite rightly so, and the players, is that almost immediately after Ramos, uh, sorry, Ramos, there you go, that's the <laughs> almost immediately after Torres is sent off, I mean, about a minute and a half later, Busquets makes a challenge that's worse and doesn't get a yellow. And I think that's what makes it quite hard to swallow the yellow card, the second yellow card, and therefore the red. But you think, well, well, hang on, is this challenge not every bit as bad? I thought we had a referee that was kind of pulling out cards all over the place, some of them unnecessarily so. But I do think that Torres got himself in trouble. And you know what? Funny enough, Torres would agree with that as well. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Torres' comments afterwards. He says the referee was poor, but he also says that he feels responsible, responsible mm. for the defeat. He knows he got it wrong. He knows that, that he made it too easy for the referee to send him off, or maybe, to put it the other way, too difficult for the referee not to. Mm. I mean, we were talking after the, uh, after the game the other, uh, the, on the weekend. Uh, Michael Laudrup's comments on Sky, I thought were interesting, where he, where he was saying, you know, uh, knowing the Catalans, knowing Barcelona, um, one defeat is actually enough to get everybody completely freaking out again and, and losing their heads. Even though they've won, you know, they've, they've, they haven't lost in 39 just losing one, suddenly everybody starts to doubt again. And I wonder if, if that was evident in, in some of Barcelona's lack of flow, you know, against the team that's down to 10. Usually they're really, you know, masterful in that situation. But it kind of takes Luis Suarez to come and score a couple of scruffy goals. I wonder if, um, if you think that might, uh, if, if one victory, conversely, is enough to, to sort of get them back in the groove again. Yeah, I mean, again, I think... This is kind of a question that, again, I don't think has a really clear-cut answer, um, by which I mean there's been, there's been quite a lot of talk over the last uh, day or so, and, and I think quite rightly, about what you're saying there, that, that you've got this team that supposedly is very, very choral, very beautiful, that you moves the ball very well, and then you've got Suarez, who would, who's more of an Atletico Madrid player almost. You know, and, and, and the, but they needed that, and this is, this is, this, the parallels have been drawn over, over the last day or so, which I think are, are important ones between Suarez and Risto Stoichkov, that Stoichkov was the bad guy that Cruyff needed in that team. The person who said, all this pretty play is fine, but we need someone who's, who's nasty. We need someone who puts the ball away when, when, it, when, it's, when it's getting a little bit, when the game is getting a little bit kind of messy, when it's not really working for us. And, and then that kind of breaks us away from that sense of being kind of straight-jacketed. You know, it, it breaks you out and then you can play again. Um, and and I, think, I think there's something in that. But, but for what it's worth, I, you know, I know Atletico Madrid were down to 10 men and I think what that really did was it prevented them from, from relieving the pressure on the defence. It prevented them from having the outlet ball to relieve the pressure. But I actually thought in the second half, at least, Barcelona handled it extremely well. I mean, we're talking about an Atletico Madrid side that no one can score against. Yeah, I know it's only 10 men, but a team that when it puts its mind to just defending is extraordinarily hard to break down. And I actually thought that Barcelona largely did that quite well, pushing the two fullbacks up, um, opening the pitch out to make it as wide as possible. They created a few chances in little threaded balls through the middle, a lot of chances from crosses, and Dani Alves, I think, was, was their most important player, as it turned out, along with Suarez. And, and I thought that, that Barcelona, in the first half, were, were, were poor and did seem kind of disconcerted by it all. But I actually thought in the second league they dealt with that quite well. Yeah, I thought it was quite fascinating. You often hear the, this notion that a sending off uh, ruins a game like that. I actually f found it quite fascinating when Atletico Madrid had no choice but to just defend and, mm. and w watching Barcelona try to break them down. Um, and also yeah. watching Atletico do it. Um, when, when it went, went down to 10 men, I mean, you know, look, of course this is not entirely true. Every team would rather have 11 on the pitch. But when they went down to 10 men, I had a little bit of the Inter Milan feeling from, when was mm. it, 2010, was it, I think, um, 
when you say, OK, if you've got a team that's, that has the lead, that has the advantage, is extremely strong defensively anyway, and on top of that, you take away any doubt from that team about whether it should step forward or not. And then you, you effectively kind of impose upon the remaining 10 the, 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 the sort of the need to work even more than they normally would. And you remove that small doubt about when do we look to break, when do we come away from it. We just protect ourselves. I'm not entirely sure that, that actually does debilitate that team defensively. Defensively. Now, obviously, it debilitates them in, in many other ways. And so I must admit, I, I still think that despite being down to 10 men, that was an extraordinarily difficult task that Barcelona had in front of them. And, and as I say, I, I think they actually dealt with it quite well. We have no idea what would happen with 11, and I think Atletico may well have got a better result, and, and I think Atletico are more than entitled to what it's worth to feel extremely annoyed yeah. about the referee. I mean, I really, you know, I really do think they, they, they are. Um, but, but, you know, in terms of the way they approach it, and perhaps this is the big difference between Madrid and Barcelona, Real Madrid are a brilliant team with space in front of them. They, they counter-attack fantastic. They've got great players. They do tend to make chances eventually. But I always feel like it's more through momentum and inertia than, than through, through intelligence. And last night we saw, I think, a Real Madrid team up against the defensive side who didn't know how to pull them from side to side and open them up and only did it once, maybe twice. Whereas Barcelona, I think we're, a side, we're seeing a side who can do that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Barcelona-Atletico tie is, is really close now. I mean, you could, you could see Atletico... Winning that 1-0, it's, it's very difficult yeah. to, to predict what's going to happen. Real Madrid, though, I mean, all the statistics suggest Real Madrid are, are gone. 2-0 is, is a almost impossible result to overturn. I get the impression from what I saw of that game last night that Real Madrid could easily overturn that. Yeah, That they could, they could easily score three, four goals against, against Wolfsburg. I really wouldn't be surprised to see them in the next round at all. Yeah, me too. There was, there was a moment... Um Quite a, there was a kind of 15-minute period between the back end of the first half and the first 10 minutes or so of the second half when Wolfsburg gave Real Madrid the ball in the space between the back four and the midfield three or four times. They kept giving the ball away really, really cheaply. Now, then, actually, they then kind of came back and, and picked it off again, I thought, quite well. But I, I felt like they were a second away from a terrible mistake time and time again. Then, actually, to be fair, from about... 60th minute roughly they, they settled really well I thought and, and kept Madrid at bay um, and I do think Madrid lacked ideas and obviously you imagine that we'll see a, a Wolfsburg side defend deep which denies Real Madrid their greatest quality which is the, the ability to run into space um, and it will be difficult for Madrid but yeah I agree with you I, I still think the gap between these two teams in terms purely of talent is, is big enough that, that Real Madrid can turn the round. And they always go on about the, 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 the comebacks in Europe. That is that kind of a badge of identity for Real Madrid. But actually, you have to go back, um, I think it's 15 years now, since the last time they came, came back from behind in the European game. Sid, cracking stuff, thank you. My pleasure. There you go, Ken, we were both right, says, this, says Sid Lowe. That was uh, the wisdom of Solomon from Sid. <laughs> yeah. I feel, Doesn't really settle anything for us, Sid, but... Uh, Great chat as always. Well, I mean, what I took away from it was that I was right. <laughs> Similarly, I took away that uh, I might have been correct yeah. myself. The Atleti- oh, I don't know if you were, you said earlier on that the game was kind of ruined or that Atletico's chances were kind of ruined. And then I took Sid off in a direction there where we talked about how compelling it was in some ways to watch, to watch Atletico accept what they had to do and to watch Barcelona try to break that. You just, I, I think I'm always comparing it to... I've said before in the podcast to your standard La Liga matches where Barcelona are playing a much weaker team. I'm not talking about Atletico here; mm. they're playing the weaker teams. And Messi scores two, and Suarez scores one, and it's just like so boring. Yeah, mm. it's just so boring when they're not challenged. I, I and I don't think I don't think they're a boring team. Boring's maybe too strong, but it doesn't excite me in any way. Really, mm. uh, it's just a bit of aesthetics. Whereas when you're watching them having to try to break down a team like this, who've gone fully into their shell because they've had to, uh, I think it, it's actually grimly fascinating to watch yeah it is uh, I mean they've, they usually win to be fair I mean even that they game they usually against, get there yeah. even the game against the Inter they actually did win that game but they couldn't win it by enough mm-hmm. they were losing by two goals uh, already um, they do usually find a way through I mean they could have won by more you know Neymar had shot off the bar which you would have expected him to score I mean it, was, it would have been a brilliant goal but having got to the position where he could take that shot I thought he was going to score, and he had a similar shot then, which went just wide of the post. On another day, they go in, and maybe it would have been an easier uh, 
uh, maybe it would have been an easier win. Maybe the tie would have been over. Messi I mean, had that bicycle kick as well. Mm. When he control, well, didn't he control it in the chest? Control in the yeah, chest. Yeah, and then, I was just watching back today. I didn't realize how, how good a run he'd made as well. It's one of these. He laid a ball off and makes a clever little run into the box, and it's suddenly there to. Oh, it's annoying that it didn't go in. You, yeah. you want the ball to go in. Would have been nice, though. Uh, you do still think that they've got a chance, that Atletico have a chance? They do. I mean, they could easily, as Sid was saying, they're very difficult to score against. 1-0 is, is the kind of results you could you could easily imagine Atletico getting. Depends on uh, whether Barcelona... I mean, if Barcelona give a performance like they did against Real Madrid uh, the other week, uh, the weekend, then they'll lose. Then, they, then they're gone. But um, I, find, I just find it hard to bet against, you know, Messi, Suarez and Neymar. I just think that, you know, they're going to probably... Be too good. We're going to put another podcast out today featuring US Masters talk with, and particularly Rory McElroy chat with Brian Murphy, the US Murph, and we'll also be chatting about Anthony Joshua, who is fighting in only his 16th professional fight, and already it's uh, for a world title. He's one of the most impressive, one of the most impressive sportsmen certainly in the in the UK in the last. A uh, few years, and he's got his big chance this weekend. So we'll talk about that as well. That tiny last bit of the banana can did not do it for me. I think we got to go get some pizza for okay. this next podcast. Let's oh, let's get some carbs. Do you know where we can go and do some pizza tossing? Where? New York City, baby. Oh yeah, we'll definitely some pizza tossing courses. Oh, I'm sure there's got to be places. Yeah. Do we have time for that? Or? Later in the week. Yeah, we'll get we'll get all our shows done. Loads of great podcasts coming up starting on Tuesday. We've got our live show on Brass Monkey on Wednesday. By I'd say by Friday evening, certainly we'll be we'll be able to toss. Let's some pizza. revisit that. <laughs> yeah, Let's revisit that. All right, chat to you then. Take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.